Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We'd like to welcome everyone to Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, or SACPA as we like to call ourselves. I would like to ask everybody to turn off their cell phones now, if, if you could, please. My name is Graham Greenley. Uh, I'll be the moderator for today. And, uh, this session is being recorded. Cost of the session is $11. Please put your money in a basket, the basket on each table, and someone will be around to collect it a little bit later. And would someone at each table please count the money, make sure that there's enough, everybody is paid. SACPA is a volunteer organization, non-profit, and we rely on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue our work. Memberships are available from Lisa in the corner. I would like to thank our partners, University of Lethbridge, for their support and the distribution of notices. Also, Country Kitchen Catering, who always provide a great lunch. Shaw TV, who broadcast in the sessions Sundays at 4.30 p.m. Yeah. Lethbridge Herald, who always give, give us good coverage, and the total Lethbridge Media. Format of the meeting, we allow 25 to 30 minutes for each part of the presentation. First is a presentation, then we break for lunch, and then we reconvene for a question and discussion period. Our speaker today is Dr. Tim McAllister. Dr. Tim is a principal research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at the Lethbridge Research Center. Dr. Tim works in multiple areas, including ruminant nutrition, microbial ecology, and measurement of greenhouse gas emissions from ruminants. His work on E. coli 0157H7 has focused on the ecology of this bacterium in cattle just to lower the presence of this human pathogen in the cattle host. Work on the use of viruses uh, such as bacteriophage that are specific for killing this E. coli has been one of Dr. Tim's lab's key accomplishments. His group has identified strains that are highly adept at killing E. coli 0157H7, and were the first to publish the genome sequence of a T5-like fodge with these characteristics. His team's most recent interest is in defining the role that super-shatter cattle play in the ecology of E. coli 0157H7 from farm to fork. Please welcome me... Well. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tim McAllister. 
Thanks. Thanks very much, Graham. You see, they removed the podium here, so because nobody can see me if I get behind the podium. So, but I am tethered to this line, so I won't be moving around too much. But um, so there's been a lot of information we've seen come out. Obviously, the press has just been saturated with information in relation to what happened at Excel, and. When I saw that information out, I just continually thought about how much this has been simplified and how it's much more complex than what you actually get to see uh, from a quick snippet in the paper or uh, a quick uh, two-minute discussion on the radio. So I wanted to try to give you some appreciation, so I hope that you get an idea of why it's so complex to try to control an organism uh, like this in such a broad environment. So that's one thing I, I hope to get across. Uh, so I want to start out with a very simple question, and one thing that I hear time and time. How many people in this room have had E. coli? Raise your hands. Everybody should put their hand up. Okay? So that's one thing that we often see, is they don't differentiate between good E. coli and bad E. coli. We all have E. coli. It's something about the genetic makeup of E. coli 157 that makes it bad. And part of what we're trying to do is to figure out what it is about that genetic makeup that causes the problem. And there's a lot of information out there already uh, in, in, that's attempting to do that. So let's just look at what the XL thing made, uh, what the ramifications of it were. And I like to call it callback 2012. I really don't see what happened as a massive outbreak. Okay, there's a difference between a callback and an outbreak. It's definitely the largest meat call, recall in Canadian history with over 1,800 products. There's been 16 cases now. Those are spread across the country. That just shows the distribution of meat from that plant across the nation. For comparison purposes, I want to put this in some sort of perspective. There was an outbreak that occurred in Germany last year in 2011. It was a different E. coli. It was E. coli 104H4, but it infected 3,950 people and it killed 53 people. So that's what we're talking about. And I would say that at least in Canada, I don't know, I wasn't in Germany at the time, but the amount of press that's been coverage was similar between these two events. So that's a very important thing to realize. And in that case, like I'll get into a little bit, but 25% of the people that came up with infection with that 104 had kidney problems. And it's really when you get into the kidney problems that you start to have serious health effects on, on individuals. So what was the cost of that? Well, there was $40 million in product that was lost. And the implications for export, and there's still cattle sitting in the feedlots that, can't, you know, that were ready for slaughter three weeks ago that haven't gone because the plant's closed. So there's other factors contributing, and we've had a change in management as well as, as, as coming out. So I would summarize to what I've seen. There is some good information. It's not all bad information. I'd say most of it is sparse information, and there's been some blatant misinformation as well. So I hope to set a few of these things straight. So what is E. coli 157? Well, one of the things I've heard is that, well, we never had E. coli 157 75 years ago back when we used to grow cattle out on grass and we didn't have these darn feedlots. Well, the truth is E. coli 157 had never been documented. It was first documented in 1970. That's the first time anybody even isolated it in a lab. And it wasn't until 1982 that, in fact, it was connected with causing disease in humans through the jack in the box outbreak that occurred in the United States. So it's a relatively recent organism. It's part of a large group of organisms, which we call enterohemorrhagic E. coli or shigatoxin-producing E. coli. 
And what makes them unique from other E. coli is they produce these virulence factors, which we call shigatoxins. There's some uh, other factors that help it attach within the intestinal tract. And why we have a problem is that these toxins, we have receptors in our kidneys uh, that will recognize those toxins and they can cause damage to the kidney cells. Cattle do not have those receptors. So that's why cattle can carry E. coli 157 and show no clinical symptoms as a result of that and why it has an impact on us. So this is where it causes the problem. It doesn't take very many to make people sick. Only as few as 10 bacteria can infect an individual. It usually takes about 24 to 48 hours before you see any symptoms at all with the initial diarrhea. That then then can develop over a course of a week into bloody diarrhea. And then if you're susceptible, then you can have about 5% of those cases will develop into hemolytic syndrome. So that can lead to potential fatality. And of those cases, 3 to 5% of that 5% can be fatal. Many individuals, though, could have long-term kidney damage, and it could be a health issue that they'll carry with them for the rest of their life. So we can't, you know, say that this is not an issue for the individuals that become infected. It's a big issue for anybody that develops into the state where they start to develop HUS. So you can't under, you know, downplay the significance of that for those individuals that get infected. But it's not a Canadian problem. It's a worldwide problem. This just shows the distribution uh, globally of where E. coli 157 has been isolated. I want to make the point again about the relationships to, to, to grain and how, you know, we've heard about the feedlots and that. Well, they've also found it in New Zealand. New Zealand doesn't have any feedlots. There's no feedlots in New Zealand. They don't use grain. It's almost exclusively a pasture-based production system. I've been there, and they know how to graze grass better than any other place in the world. And that's the foundation and, and the profitability of their industry. But they still have E. coli 157. So it's in 50 countries, six continents. It hasn't been in Antarctica. Uh, that's about the only place in Greenland or probably the only two places. Those white spots in Africa are probably white because nobody's tried to look for it. Uh, in the U.S., it's about 73,000 cases. It costs about $0.7 billion a year. We have an incident of about 2.3 per 100,000. Probably costs about $21 million directly and about $82 million in indirect each year. This just shows the distribution of uh, who can catch the bug. So this is Canadian data. And this is from 2008, the, the bar graph shows. The very young and the very old are more susceptible to con uh, contracting E. coli 157 and having more severe consequences as a result of it. It may have to do with the degree of strength of the immune system, but if you look at the Canadian data, the actual number of cases have been going down. Uh, basically, uh, from 529, 661 in 2008, 529 in 2009, 404, 2010, a little bit of a blip upwards, 482 in 2011. This uh, incidence we've had here could potentially not affect this data. We could still see a downward trend because we're only talking 16 cases. So uh, we don't know. We won't obviously know that until this year's end, but uh, it is possible that it won't change. So when we talk about E. coli 157, one thing that we've learned about all E. coli, like we used to think that E. coli strictly resided within the intestinal tract of warm-blooded mammals. And what we're finding is that E. coli actually can survive in a number of environments much better than what we originally proposed. So, for example, we've measured that E. coli 157 can remain alive 
in a pen, feedlot pen, on the floor for over 200 days. And that would not have been known, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That wouldn't have thought been possible. So what I've done here is I've made a little diagram, and it really just talks about where E. coli 157 is. And so we really have to think that E. coli 157 is dispersed throughout the environment. And within those environments, as a scientist, when we want to study it, one thing that we first look at is, what are the number of variables that I have to consider in order to study the science of this organism? And when we start out then, if we talk about a pasture system, the number of variables are the highest at that component because we're dealing with the largest extensive environment. There's a lot of interaction of the cattle with wildlife, with water sources. There's a lot of variables there that we would need to control in order to study that scientifically. As we move down to the feedlot, we start to reduce those variables, right? Because we control their diet. We know what all the cattle are being fed. We have them all in a limited geographical location. And we can sample them frequently in that environment. So we can study it a little closer. But still, there's a lot of variables there. There's a lot of different animals, animals coming from different places, different densities of animals. There's still a lot of variables present. Then when we move into the slaughter plant, all the cattle enter the slaughter plant. They're killed in essentially the same way. They're not fed differently. There's not those variables that we were encountering in the feedlot where different feedlots feed different diets. In the slaughter plants, they pretty well go through all the same processes. And in the large slaughter plants, those are inspected by CFIA. And there are requirements in terms of how those animals are handled and how they go through that process. So the number of variables are getting lower and lower and lower that we have to deal with. But there's still a lot of variables in a slaughter plant because there's animals coming in with different degrees of load. There's animals with different amounts of 0157 on their hides. And how those animals are handled within that environment can also affect the likelihood of contamination. But it's far less complex than when we were back in the pasture. Then we go into the retail sector. Now you've got meat that's been delivered and, and, and hopefully has been uh, processed properly so that it, there is no contamination. But that doesn't rule out the possibility of contamination at the retail stage as well because that's also another possibility. But at least you're getting down to a smaller amount of meat that's being handled by a fewer amount of individuals. But when we start to move into the consumer, that's where you've got your own piece of meat. And it's your intention to eat that meat. So now we're down to even less people handling that meat because you or your family members are the ones that are doing it. So now you actually know who's touching that meat. And where you can control it the most then is how you cook that meat. And we know that if you achieve the temperatures, then you can eliminate the E. coli from being present in the food. So who has the most control in this entire chain? The individual consumer does. And that's where the variabilities are the least because if you cook the meat... Really, at the cooking stage, there's only one variable. Cook the meat properly, there's no problem. So that's why it makes it really difficult to, try to study this from a science perspective because when you move up from that chain, we've got to start controlling all those variables and measuring them and figuring out how they could potentially impact our outcome. So I've worked at the most complex section of that chain, the animal and it's important to realize that, yeah, cattle are probably the, the major host of E. coli 157, but they're certainly not the only one. All of these uh, animals that I've got on this diagram have had E. coli 157 isolated from them, and there's many more that I don't have on this diagram that have. So it's not just in cattle. And when we look at that, uh, we're often looking at where's the transmission taking place. Are the cattle transmitting it to the horses or are the horses transmitting it to the cattle? Whenever you talk about transmission of an organism, you always have to realize that it can go in both directions. It's not necessarily just a one-way street. 
And obviously, many times you'll hear that it's only going in one direction. That's never the case. There's always the possibility it could go to the other direction as well. So within the feedlot cattle production environment, where we start to have problems is if that organism moves out from the cattle into environments, like if we're talking about daycares or petting zoos or that type of thing, or that material is not properly handled and ends up going on to vegetables, which are in turn consumed. That's basically what happened uh, with the 0104 outbreak in Germany, is that fenugreek uh, seeds that were going into cells became contaminated with that organism, or at least that's what they thought they traced it back to, or if it ends up in the meat, or if it goes into our water systems. And so really, it's, there's a number of factors that will determine the likelihood of an organism moving from the cattle into that environment. And some of those factors we can control, and some of them are, are, are somewhat beyond our control. Within the feedlot environment as well, we have a number of sources of potential transmission. There can be transmission between animals. Uh, there can be transition from manure to the animal. And from our research, we would say that that's the major form of transmission that takes place in conjunction with animal contact. There could be some in the water. We have taken isolated 0157 out of water troughs in feedlots. And there could be some in feed. We haven't found it, but there are others that have. But out of all of those systems, probably the manure and the transmission amongst the animals are the most significant within that environment. Now, E. coli 0157 actually resides mainly in the lower intestinal tract. So this just shows the GI tract of the animal. And that first big stomach lab labeled B there, that's the rumen. So that's where the majority of the feed is digested. And in fact, that environment is not very conducive to E. coli 0157 because it tends to be quite acidic. And E. coli 0157 can be sensitive to the acids that are produced in the rumen. So E. coli 157 already has a bit of a challenge in terms of getting through that rumen alive so that it can then establish itself in the lower tract. And we think the majority of the E. coli 157 within the tract resides within the, what we call the rectilineal junction, that region that I have there marked as H. And so that's where the E. coli 157 would be released from that tissue into the feces and then be excreted out into the environment. So obviously when you're talking about in a slaughter plant, avoiding the feces from getting out of the digestive tract is one of the steps that they really focus on in terms of reducing the likelihood of carcass contamination. Now, we mentioned in the introduction that we're really interested in super shedders, and I think it's really fascinating when we look at how cattle carry E. coli 157 differently. And really what we're wanting to figure out is that there are... The majority of cattle probably are shedding, when we measure them, between 100 to maybe even 10 E. coli per gram of feces. So it's not really super high. But we find some cattle that are shedding 10,000 cells of E. coli 0157 per gram of feces. We call those animals super shedders. And we've actually seen them shedding up to 10 million E. coli cells per gram of feces of 0157. Now, it's been proposed that less than 5% of the population actually reach this super shedder status. And that they are responsible just because of the sheer mass of E. coli that they're excreting for 80-90% of the transmission in, in the uh, feedlot. And there was some allusion to this in the, original, in the original press releases that were sent out by CFIA in relation to the XL affair. They said that what happened and why the uh, contamination occurred was because we had a high event day 
that resulted in the overwhelming of our control systems in the plant, and that's how the meat became contaminated. What they meant by a high event day is that they had a lot of these super shedders coming into the plant to be slaughtered on that particular day. Now, in reality, I don't really think we have the scientific data to draw that linkage. And some of that I'll show you in this, in this data. But are they responsible for those high event days? That's something we actually have a grant application in for to try to answer because nobody really knows the answer to that. Now, there's a tremendous amount of work in order to identify a super shedder because we have to go in and we have to collect the fecal sample and then we have to plate it out. And we don't only need to know whether E. coli 157 is there or not, we need to know how many there is there. So we have to enumerate it. And the only way to do that is by plating. So I, we almost literally have an army of people involved in this, uh, processing all those plates and counting the bacteria so that we can identify the super shedder animals in the feedlots. And this is some data that I just want to share. This is hot off the press. And this was alarming to us because, you know, it's super shedders, if they're a problem, uh, then that's, that's something we can study and, and probably get research funds to support. But this particular study that we did, what we did is we went into a feedlot and we sampled 400 animals. From a single feedlot, they were in different pens, though. And we identified a total of, I think it's like 13 or 16 super shedders. Anyway, they were all identified, so we knew the individual pen that they came from. There were three pens they came from, and we knew the animals' numbers. And what we did then is we purchased those cattle from the feedlot, and we transported them to the research center. And you can see what happened. So on day zero, we recognized them. By the time we do the microbiology and everything, and we arrange the transport and the sale of the animals, it takes us four days to do that. We transported them to the research center, and look what happened. Only two of them were super shedders by day four. And when we went further through longer days, you can see that we only had a total of three other events on day four and day five where the animals remained to be a super shedder. The rest of the time, some of the times they were positive, shedding that 10 to 100 CFUs per gram or cells per gram, but they never shed the 10,000 or higher. So they quit shedding as, or acting as super shedders. So, you know, are those super shedders responsible for high event days? Maybe not. If they transporting them causes them to stop being super shedders, then they wouldn't be as big an issue. We really don't know the answer. You can see in some cases... Uh, there's even incidences where we sampled them on the same day. They were super shedders in the morning and negative in the afternoon. So that's the kind of variability you're dealing with when you're trying to make these measurements. And really, that sh our data says, well, super shedders are not as big a deal as we originally thought. Now, which animals become a super shedder? We don't know that. Maybe all animals become a super shedder at a certain period of time. What is it about the animal that makes it become a super shedder? And are the bacteria that cause that super shedding state, are they all the same? Or is there different E. coli 157? Is there certain E. coli 157 that are more likely to cause super shedding? Those are the kinds of questions we're trying to answer right now. So if we move on now then into on-farm control strategies, there's been a huge amount of work done on trying to uh, control E. coli 157 on the farm. That's the good news. The bad news is that none of it's been very successful. Okay, so, you know, we can use antibiotics, so we can put neomycin sulfate in the water, but of course there's a huge issue then, once you start using antibiotics, that leads to antibiotic resistance. So that's not very palatable by the industry. There's some compounds we can add, chlorate, nitrate, nitroethane. What those do is that the E. coli is unable to metabolize those and they become toxin, killing the E. coli. 
but there's administration issues on how you get that into the animal, and there's also regulatory issues. There's been a petition to the USDA in the United States for about 10 years trying to get chlorate uh, approved as an additive for this purpose, and it's still not through the system. We've looked a lot at plant extracts. We've actually took seaweed out of the mo- oceans in Nova Scotia, and we've extracted and we've identified tannins uh, working with the Canadian sea plants. They're a company in Nova Scotia. And we found that those tannins in the seaweed will actually kill E. coli 157. And we've done similar work with legumes like bird's foot trifoil and sanfoin where we've taken phenolic compounds out, and we know we can kill E. coli 157. But how do we administer those under a practical perspective? You know, there's... Uh, one million head of feedlot cattle within 100 kilometers of here, that would take a heck of a lot of seaweed to feed that many animals, right? And who's going to pay to transport from Nova Scotia to here? So there's always some limitations, whether they be economic or practical, that really influence the ability to readily implement these within a production system. Essential oils, basically these are extracts from uh, all the spices that you have in your, carb- in your cupboards. Uh, there's a reason why spices are added to food. It's because they are antimicrobial agents. They have compounds in them. If we extract those compounds out of the spice, yes, they'll kill E. coli 157. I heard on the radio the other day they were talking about uh, improving the tenderness of steak. And one way to do that is to marinate it. Well, if you marinate it in the spices, guess what? You've got an antimicrobial in there that would kill E. coli 157 if it happened to be in the steak and that marinade. So, five minutes, holy camoly. <laughs> so I'll pick up the pace. Probiotics is adding bacteria uh, to the diets. There's a product in the United States that's been used for that, marginally successful. The advantage of pro- probiotics is they improve feed efficiency. The vaccine, you've heard a lot about that. The vaccine could lower the E. coli 157, but they're not going to eliminate it. And the forage versus concentrate diets, there's mixed data on that as well. Uh, there's some data using di- dried distillers grains, increases E. coli 157. That's a byproduct out of the ethanol industry. Uh, but we did a study on that. We found no impact of that additive. So there's no data that suggests uh, that e- feeding grain increases E. coli 157. It does increase E. coli, but not necessarily E. coli 157. This is just a bit about on the bacterial viruses. So these are the phage that kill E. coli 157. Basically how they work is they attach to the cell, they overtake the genetic engineering machine in the E. coli, replicate themselves, and cause the cell to burst. So they're a self-replicating method of controlling or killing the organism. So that just shows them attached. You can see there's those little structures here. They're attached to E. coli 157 carrying out that process. There's a product that has been approved for that in, in the U.S., but even the phage differs. So these are four phages that we have. You can see that this particular phage was effective at killing E. coli from all of these feedlots and dairies 100%. But there were other phage that were less successful. So in the microbial world, nothing is absolute. Okay, there's variability all the time. And we find those phage in different environments. So they're already present in the feedlot environment, killing E. coli 157. And we found that phage that we get from an environment that's common with E. coli 157, the same E. coli 157 kills it better than if we get a phage from another feedlot that hasn't had exposure to that same E. coli 157. So we use this genetic fingerprinting method. And this what I want, point I want to make here is the point about adaptation and evolution of bacteria and how quickly they can do it. So what we did is we used this genetic fingerprinting. We can identify every organism that we introduce, every E. coli 157 we introduce into the cattle. So this is several strains of E. coli 157 that we put into the cattle, and we can tell which one it is based on that genetic fingerprint. 
So what we did is we put those E. coli-157 into the cattle, and then we treated the cattle with phage to see whether we could kill it. And this just shows how easily each of the E. coli-157 were killed. So the greater the number that it takes to kill the E. coli-157, the less effective it is. So the fewer phage you can kill E. coli-157 with, the better. This was in a single trial that we did this. And even during that trial, we started to isolate these unknown E. coli-157s. You can see here. And look at what's happened to the number of phage that it takes to kill them. It's gone up over 1,000, 10,000-fold higher. And when we did the genetic fingerprinting on these bacteria, these E. coli-157, they differed from a couple of these by only a single band. So what that means is that even in that single trial, those E. coli 157s already evolved to be more resistant to our phage. And as a result, it was much more difficult for us to kill them. That's what bacteria do. So there's a whole bunch of things going on in the slaughter plants. And Ted Haney next week will probably talk about this in more detail. But they've got where they hide washes, they remove the hair. That's not used on a big scale, the de-hairing, but it does, it does reduce the amount of uh, organisms on the hide. The sealing of the rectum, I've already talked about. Water, about a 10 times reduction. Steam, up to a 10,000-fold reduction on the carcasses. Steam vacuuming, another 100-fold. So in the commercial slaughter plants, usually there's multiple steps of these that are applied. Not just one, but many of them. And each time you're looking at a reduction of, on, on the surface of the carcass. So it's increasing levels of confidence that you're eliminating the pathogen if it was there. There's chilling, there's been some talk about irradiation, but irradiation would be later on after multiple of those privacy, and we can talk about that in the question period if we want. The final points I want to make is that not all E. coli-157 are created equal. Just because they say it's E. coli-157, it doesn't mean it's all the same organism. Saying E. coli-157s are all the, uh, all the same is like saying the human population is all the same. If you look around the table, there's a lot of variation amongst us. And there's equal variation amongst those 0157. In fact, we can identify that there's two lineages, what we call lineage 1 and lineage 2. And we find that lineage 1 occurs a lot more in people and less in cattle. And lineage 2 causes a lot more in cattle than in people. So is it possible that some people contaminated cattle with lineage 1? And that's why we have the problem we have today? That's a possibility. And then there's a whole bunch of other serotypes that we haven't even talked about. And that's actually before the XL uh, callback took place. That's where we were focusing because the U.S. is uh, coming down the pipe with regulations to control a whole bunch of these other serotypes. 0157 is not the only one that makes people sick. Uh, all of these other do. And we actually had a grant in to look at the top six because if they start testing at the border for all of these 0157 plus all of those other serotypes, we're probably going to have a lot more callbacks in the future. And then I just wanted to say what my greatest concern out of everything I heard from all of this whole thing that happened, and that's the tenderization process. I didn't know they tenderized meat, and this scared me. And the reason why it scared me, because I know there's a possibility that there could be E. coli on the surface of my steak. But I cook my steak on the barbie, and I make sure that it reaches 70 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and therefore I kill the E. coli-157. But I like my steak medium rare, so if they're taking this machine and driving that E. coli-157 into the interior of it, so that now my medium rare only maybe got to 40 degrees Celsius in the middle, then I could potentially get infected with E. coli-157 when I eat that. And the surprising thing is, is that we have a machine in the laboratory that we use for inoculating 96 well plates, it looks almost exactly like this tenderizer. So it's the ideal machine for inoculation if it was contaminated. 
So there you are, you're depending upon, you know, the people in the retail sector to make sure that that instrument is not contaminated. So not all E. coli 157 make people sick. Not all people that carry E. coli 157 show clinical symptoms. So you can be a carrier and infect others without even knowing it. E. coli 157 works very hard at persisting and adapting to a wide range of environments. Microbes are masters of adaptation. That's a take-home message for sure. They exchange genetic material more readily into a greater diversity of organisms than we ever thought was possible. And I think this was a really neat example. I just pulled this off of the website of Health Canada. October 15th, 2012, Canada recalls antibacterial hand soap because it's got pseudoarginosa in it. Okay, so you're going there, you're thinking you're taking the hand soap to stop the bacteria. Guess what? They're hiding in there waiting for you. Okay? That's how they can adapt. We are guests in a microbial world. Microbes were on this earth long before we showed up, and they'll probably be here long after. Eradication is not an option. There's no such thing as zero risk. Responsibility for food safety must be shared across the farm to food continuum. And if we draw that same triangle I had before, where can we control it? 160 degrees Fahrenheit or 70 degrees Celsius, I can assure you 100% that you will kill all E. coli 157 if you carry out that practice. And that's right at the bottom. And it won't matter what anybody does up there if you take care of it here. Okay? So thanks very much. Thank you.